Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. This week, Pastor Andy Rock returns and preaches a sermon out of Acts chapter 20 titled, Falling Down. You see, the church is not a building, not an event. In the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, you are the church. You get to join Jesus in his resurrection work. Think of all the ways you sacrifice in life. You sacrifice time for your children and grandchildren. You make time for medical emergencies, and you sacrifice and save to go on vacations. Jesus deserves your sacrifice, and so do the people he's putting in front of you. Your prayers and generosity make a difference. There are so many people who are dying all around us, dead from sin and rebellion. What do they need from you? They need you to go to them. They need your embrace. They need your love. They need your prayers. You might be the only church they ever see. He found you and healed you and now is showing you how to repent, how to have faith, and how to love. You have things to say and you have things to do that are important that will literally bring life in the middle of a situation full of death. My gosh. Uh, this, this, the season for our, my Seattle Seahawks went perfectly as a Seattle fan. Uh, and that, that looks like, um, oh, we're going to stink this year. Oh, actually, we might be better than I thought. Wow, we're actually pretty. No, we stink. Oh, we got in by the skin of our teeth. No, we got destroyed. That'd be great. So if we kept on winning, I would be so anxious. So I'm, uh, I'm so grateful that we lost. Um, so, you know, um, as a church, we do this thing called change for a dollar. And uh, uh, we... we we don't have a story this week. Uh, we, we do for a second service, but not for first service. But at 6 a.m. this morning, I got a text from a lady named Shum- Summer Schmidt. Uh, her husband, Matt, had brain cancer two years ago. He's an elementary school teacher. You might know him. Uh, but uh, Summer texted me at 6 a.m. She said this, I'm up early with the Lord, and he's reminding me of all the generosity we were shown by your church just over two years ago. I want to say thank you again and let you know, all know how great Matt is doing. This time last year, he was bald and wearing a device on his head that had wires coming out the back. It was helping disrupt the tumor cell production. Today is a full head of hair, a clean bill of health, and is halfway through his first year of teaching second grade. <laughs> Matt. Matt was also gifted a victory trip from 17 Strong for his victory over cancer. This coming summer, we'll be traveling to Paris, France. You have no idea how special your church are to us. Thank you again for being part of Matt's healing story, not just financially, but through your prayers. Praise the Lord, our healer and comforter. This is Love You Coastal Community Church. So I'm so grateful for you guys because you're making a difference, and man, what a blessing you are. Uh, if, if you are new or visiting with us for the first time, uh, or if you've been here a thousand times, we do this every week, and we remind ourselves what we're all about as a church. And there's three things that we believe that we see in the story of Scripture repeated over and over and over again. First, read this with me. There is hope beyond our brokenness. No matter where you are in life, no matter what part of the journey of faith you are in, you are welcome here. And all of us are ragtag, bobtailed ragamuffins. Amen? Amen. Right? None of us claim perfection. None of us are Jesus. All of us are in the process of surrendering all to him because he's our victory and he's our hope. That's what it looks like. Number two, we, we believe that we are called to trust in our risen Savior. And trust is a relationship word. It means faith. It means belief. But it's the idea of I'm going to have a relationship with my alive God. I don't believe in an idea that's an intellectual uh, activity. I have a living, breathing relationship with the living, breathing God of the universe, which means that I talk and I listen. I trust and I act. It is a full relationship. That's what we believe as a church. And we don't do that alone, never alone. We always do that together. And finally, we believe to bring restoration for our community. And you did that in Matt and Summer Schmidt's life. You're doing that all over the place. You're going to hear more about how you're doing that. And in today's sermon, I have more good news for you. I'm just so thrilled at the work that you guys are doing uh, as a church. 
Um, this last year, we gave away more money than I ever thought possible. Instead of buying new stuff for our building, we gave over $100,000 away to people in need. Just awesome. It's awesome. And the figure is irrelevant. What's relevant is the fact that we decided as a community we are going to love people and practically bless them. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, I love you guys. So following Jesus, um, that's called in the Bible discipleship. A disciple literally means follower. That's what it means in the Greek. It means follower. And disciples literally followed their rabbis back in the day so close that the dust kicked up by the rabbi's feet would cover the disciples. So to be a disciple would mean that you're covered in your teacher or your rabbi's dust, right? That's how closely we follow. In fact, disciples would regularly go in when they would follow their rabbi into the bathroom just in case he'd said something profound, right? Which I'm so glad you don't do that to me, uh, right? That would be a bit much. Uh, well, what is it that we, what is, so, what, so what is it that we do when we follow Jesus? We make choices every single day. And so once again, let's declare together our choice to follow Jesus today. And let's read this. We are disciples who walk intentionally with God. Therefore, I choose to be changed by Jesus. I choose to seek Jesus first. And I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection work. So we're back in the book of Acts. And uh, we're going to finish out the book of Acts, and then we'll move on to our next sermon series. But um, it's too much. Acts has been too much fun to stop now. Um, it's at, we're in Acts chapter 20 today. It's around 57 AD. That's about 27 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, 27 years after the church is growing, church has suffered, unspeakable joy, deep relationships, broken relationships, salvation, persecution, relocation. 27 years is a long time. Paul's just spent three years living in one location. That's on the little coastal town of modern-day Turkey, on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, right in the Aegean Sea, called Ephesus. It's where we get the book of Ephesians from. It's a letter to that church. And he's planted there, and he's with this young whippersnapper named Timothy, and an even younger kid who was in Jesus' youth group. His name is John. He wrote the book of John, and later given a revelation by God, which is the book of Revelation. He writes to his disciples in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And also there with them is the mother of Jesus, Mary herself. She relocated with John because they became family after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And now they all live together and are planting a church in this bustling metropolis not dissimilar to Los Angeles called Ephesus. So Paul's there for three years to bless them. And then he's going to leave to check on the hot messes of what's happening in Corinth and then in Philippi, and then in Thessalonica, which is all on mainland Greece. And he's gonna, he realizes he, he's nearing the end of his ministry. He's going to take care of businesses in those churches. But then on his way, he's headed to Jerusalem. He's got a little legal thing that Paul's got to take care of. And Paul realizes is that this is probably the last time he's going to see all of these people. And so on this Acts chapter 20, we're going to read two moments where Paul says goodbye to some of the dearest friends he's ever known. So let me ask you a question. What would you say to your family if you had one night left with them? What would you say to your friends if you knew the challenges that they were going to face in their life and you had one night left with them? What would you tell your kids and your grandkids if you had one night left to pour into them? What would you say to them that you would never want them to forget? These two nights are that for Paul. So do I have permission to speak to your heart of hearts today? 
Well, then can we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work that you are doing in them and through them. Thank you, Jesus, for the work you're doing in me and through me. God, we offer our hearts to you today. Fill us with your spirit. Speak to us. Deliver us from evil, Jesus. Reveal the lies that we've been believing and acting out. Today, Jesus, break those lies that you are bringing to the surface. Help us, Jesus, to choose you and your kingdom and your will and your heart. So we draw near to you today, Jesus. We place ourselves under the shelter of your wings. Protect us. Speak to us. We give you our hearts this morning. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So here we go. Acts chapter 20, verse 6. Will you read with me? Say yes. Here it is. Let's read. Luke is writing, and he says, but we're not going to talk about why the but was there. Don't worry about it. Okay, ready? Here it is. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of the unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas. So that makes sense. You know what's going on, right? Uh, festival of the unleavened bread is in the springtime. Um, and so uh, they left Philippi. Philippi is the exact, I don't know if you remember this, but it is exactly like the Central Coast. Same latitude, same growing season, same temperatures, same topography. It's right of, on the coast. That's Philippi. So they leave there. And they're going to go to Troas. So let me give you, let me orient you. Here's a map, right? So Philippi is in the upper left-hand corner. That's in modern-day Macedonia. Modern-day, this is northern modern Greece. It's actually not in Macedonia. It's in Greece. Philippi is in Greece. Uh, and so they sail across to Troas, which is in modern-day Turkey. Does that make sense? So they go from there to there. That's where they are. Um, and verse 7 uh, next slide, Denise. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. So they, they came together to break bread. That's called dinner, okay? And it's Paul's last night, and he's like, I'm going to go over. Today's not my last Sunday. When my, on my last Sunday here, whenever that is, right, two decades from now or however long you have me, right, I will not preach a 25, let's be realistic, a 40-minute sermon, okay? Does that make sense? I'm going over, okay? So Paul, he kept on talking until midnight. Verse 8, read with me. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. I love how Luke sets the stage. It's midnight. Lamplight is flickering, right? Paul's been given a talk for five hours now. And, but it's a conversation. It's a conversation of friends of what are we going to do and how's this going to look and last words and encouragement, okay? N next slide. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus. This is the only kid in the youth group. He says, Dad, can I come? He's like, that's fine as long as you stay awake. Don't fall asleep during the sermon. Eutychus goes, got it. I got it. But he was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked. This is the only phrase in the New Testament where anybody is described as talking as on and on and on and on and on. Even Luke was like, land the plane, Paul, right? <laughs> when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. That's a heck of a way to end the church service, right? It's horrible. Stay awake during the sermon. You don't <laughs> want to fall asleep, right? But the conversation abruptly stops and, I mean, anytime anything happens like this, this poor kid falls out the window 35 feet onto a, a tile or concrete or stone courtyard, and he's dead. And everybody rushes down. 
Paul finally makes it down, verse 10. Paul went down. Read with me. Threw himself on the young man and put his arms around. So Paul makes it down. He picks his way through the crowd. There's Eutychus's mom and dad sobbing, weeping, crying, screaming, right? Paul picks his way through the crowd, puts his hands on the parents, moves them aside, and does something no one expects. He, he literally bear hugs, lays down, embraces this kid with his whole body. He wraps up this kid in his arms. So first of all, if you're a Jew, you don't touch dead bodies. So this is a big deal, just from a tradition standpoint. What's Paul doing? Well, he's listening to the Holy Spirit, number one. Number two, Paul is having big faith. He's trusting that what God is telling him to do is what God wants him to do, even if it's awkward. Does that make sense? He has faith big enough to know maybe me speaking for five plus hours isn't necessarily the only reason why I'm here. Maybe I'm here for another reason as well. Part of following and trusting Jesus is understanding that just because you're at work doesn't mean it's only about work. You have other things. God, God has other things for you as well. Does that make sense? Like raising your kids isn't just about the tasks. It's also about something else as well. When we get so focused on doing what we think we should be doing, we miss that God wants us to do that, and there's probably other things going on as well. Someone say amen. amen. Now, Paul literally had two images in his mind as a Jew of what happens when you deal with someone who is dead. And one comes from Elijah and then Elijah's protege, Elisha, and they both do the same thing, which is that they both wrap up the people who they encountered were dead in their arms and then pray over them. And then in those moments, for Elijah and Elisha, those dead people raise back to life again. And Paul says, I'm going to do the same thing. Because the Holy Spirit says, I want you to do this. See, I don't know about you, but if I saw parents weeping and grieving over their teenager that just lost his life, the sensitive thing to do would not be to push them aside and say, I'm going to give him a bear hug now. Right? Anybody want to do that? No. That's awkward. That's not the thing that you should do. The socially acceptable thing to do is not to pray while you hold a teenager's lifeless body. I'll never forget my friend Brian Cosby. He went and lived in Guatemala uh, during our senior year of uh, college he went on a big trip there, and I was going to go with him. I ended up not going with him, but as he was living in Guatemala, um, his host family, uh, the, the grandfather of the family died, and Guatemala is on a big, you know, that, it's a very mountainous country, and the city was down below, and the, they lived uh, up, up the mountain a ways, and so um, the dad got up from the table and said, the Spirit of the Lord has not testified to me that my father should die today. And he walked the four miles to the hospital. The hospital informed him, I'm sorry, your dad's dead. He's 72 years old. It just happens. And the guy said, the spirit of the Lord has not testified to me that my father will die today. And the doctors are like, that's great, but he's dead. Um, and the guy said, no, I'm going to see my dad. And walked into the room. And the doctor's like, OK, he's losing a little bit. How about we give him a couple minutes with his dad? And the guy just said, kept on saying, the spirit of the Lord has not testified to me that my father's supposed to die today. And so he prayed. And after an hour, they're like, sir, could we please have the room? And he's like, no. The spirit of the Lord has not testified to me that my father should die today. And they're like, that's great, but he hasn't had a pulse for over an hour. 
This went on for four and a half hours. They're like, we have to move the body for medical reasons, for safety reasons, into the cooler, and then you can and the Lord can go bury him on your schedule, but this ain't happening today. And the guy just kept on yelling louder and louder and praying louder and louder until his 72-year-old father sat up. And the doctor's like, ah! And the guy walks out with his dad and said, the spirit of the Lord has not testified to me today that my dad's going to die. Let's go home. Big faith doesn't play by neat and tidy rules. But then something happens. Paul says to everybody there, don't be alarmed. He's alive. In that embrace, bones are mended. In that prayer, the bleeding stops. In that embrace, in that prayer, skulls are restored. Brain functioning is brought back. The heart and lungs work life. I love what Luke writes next. Verse 11, read with me. Then he, that's Paul, went upstairs, broke bread and ate, and after talking until daylight, he left. <laughs> Verse 12, the exhausted people <laughs> took the young man home alive and were, yeah, they were. I love it. Paul went back up, finished his talk, and of course, everyone is needing a snack after an event like that, and then everyone, astonished by the entire night, went home greatly comforted. Let me tell you something here. You have things that God wants you to say that are designed to bring great comfort to people in your life. And it might feel a little awkward to say those things, say them. You have things to do that are so important that are going to bring great comfort to people in your life. They're going to be risky things. They're going to be generous things. They're going to be awkward things at times and at moments when you give gifts or bless or even confront in love. Do them. Every single one of you has something so important to say and do that you are literally designed and called by Jesus himself to bring life into situations filled with death. Do you understand that that is your calling? Because that's what Jesus does. He takes dead people and make them alive so that we who were once dead and now alive can walk into situations filled with pain and sorrow and death and bring life to them. Does that make sense? You are his body. His church, this building is not the church. You are the church. And where you go, Jesus goes. And right this very moment, you have everything in you that you need in order to do his calling in your life. So please, stop putting time limits on how you're going to bless each other. If the small group goes over, then it goes over. If it lasts longer than an hour, it lasts longer than an hour. If it needs to go all night long, then it needs to go all night long. You live once. You won't on your deathbed go, thank God I only prayed the allotted 10 minutes I gave myself every morning. If you need to pray for five hours, pray for five hours. Yeah, you're going to need snacks. It's scriptural. It's okay. But you never know what God is going to do in hour two unless you actually get to hour two. 
Because Netflix on the other side of the small group isn't important as what God is going to do. Someone say amen. Look, when your kids were little, did they care about what time it was when they needed you? No. Vomit doesn't care what time it is. It just happens all the time. Kids need you when they need you, when, you need, when they need you. And you as a parent, when your little ones were little, never said, nope, not today, sorry. Diapers get changed when diapers get changed, amen? That's what you did for your kids. Why? You didn't hesitate to drop everything or to wake up or to leave wherever you were to go be with your children. Why? Because they are worthy of your love. Yes? Your medical emergency doesn't care about your schedule or your work to-do lists, right? The diagnosis came when the diagnosis came. The accident came when the accident came. The the need for you to go to the doctor didn't say, well, I'd like to schedule that on Tuesday at 9. I know you don't have anything for the next couple of hours that day. It just happened what it happened. And, And what did your family do? What did you do? You spent every available dollar and resource that you had to throw at that thing so that you could live. Yes? Why? Because you're worthy of that kind of love. How about that epic vacation you took? You traveled 24 hours straight to get there. You didn't care how exhausted you were. You wanted to go. You spent a lot of money to have that experience. You sacrificed for it. Why? Because you are worthy of that kind of extravagant love and kindness and care. Amen? Amen. You worked for a long time for that. Enjoy it. Yes? Yes. You've all been on the vacation. (laughs) Say yes. Yes. I don't care if it was to like Santa Barbara or if it was to Iceland. It doesn't matter. You're worthy of it. Yes? Is Jesus not worthy of that same sacrifice and devotion? Are the people that Jesus puts in front of you also not worthy of that same sacrifice and devotion? Yeah. Jesus is worthy. No matter what time it is, no matter how much it costs, they are worthy. No matter how long it takes, no matter what's going on, Jesus is worthy of my devotion and sacrifice, and so are they. Say it with me. Jesus is worthy of my devotion and sacrifice, and so are they. You gave $13,000 this last fall to a young man named Samuel in our church who needed treatment for a fever that was happening in his brain for the last four years. It had robbed him of speech. It had robbed him of being able to take care of himself, and it robbed him of his art. It's a little kid. He's a young man with Down syndrome. He's absolutely amazing. It's like he fell from the third story and was dead. And all the insurance companies said, nah. And the doctors at first said, oh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I can't figure it out. It just, this is just kind of what happens. And his parents, Larry and Suzanne, kept on fighting for him and fighting for him and fighting for him. And finally... They took him to UCLA, and they said, no, he's got like a, a fever in his brain, and he, and he needs this amazing treatment, which will work. It's basically like chemotherapy. They're going to wipe out his immune system, and then we're going to have him in this totally sanitary environment, and then we're going to build it back up, and it'll cure it. We know it works. And then the insurance company said, nah. It's just a kid who fell from the third story window. He's already dead. There's no really point. This is a kid with Down syndrome. We don't want to spend 60 grand on this. And then what did you all do? You found that pocket with kids. You know that pocket that we all have when kids with disabilities need help? We found that pocket and we said, we're just going to give. And some of you gave $5 and some of you gave 50 and some of you gave 500 and some of you gave 5,000. You gave what you could give. And we raised $13,000 from his family, and they said, let's go. They called up the doctor in UCLA, 
they began to start the treatments, and they're like, okay, they scheduled it. And still the insurance company said no. And then they got all, another set of doctors to say, please, would you please just help our kid? And still the, doc, the insurance company said no until one person in the insurance company, one person said, this is wrong. This kid needs treatment. And that one person started a chain reaction and a massive cog Talked to their supervisor, convinced their supervisor, convinced their supervisor, supervisor, convinced a whole line of people to pay for Samuel's treatment. Here he is. This is, this is Thursday. This is last Thursday. And I talked with Suzanne on Friday. She said it could, the treatment isn't, it isn't, it could not be going any better. So can we pray for Samuel? Because he's literally in this room right now getting treatment. Can we pray for him? Lord Jesus, we pray for Samuel. We pray, God, for complete healing of his brain. We pray for Larry and Suzanne for encouragement and blessing upon them. Thank you, Jesus, that the insurance company said yes. And thank you, God, for the generosity of this church. Now their bills are paid for. Now that the work that they miss is going to be taken care of. Now their expenses of getting down there and paying for hotels. And that's covered now, Jesus, because we got to say yes to the calling that you gave us to wrap our arms around this young man. Bless Samuel. And all God's people said, in our heavenly Father's kingdom, under his reign and rule, your prayers and your sacrifice and your love brings people back to life. Amen? Why? Because Jesus says that you're worthy of it. That's why. Like, don't diminish this miracle as, oh, someone in the insurance company and industry finally did their job. Yes, they did. Praise God, right? We celebrate that. Edmund lawyers do their job. Hallelujah, right? This is miracles, absolutely. But it's way more than that. It's way more than that. This person in the insurance company saw that they had something to do that was important that could bring someone back to life, and they did it, even though it was awkward. And you have the same calling on your life, and your sacrifice, and your love, and your devotion means everything, and it worked, and it's working Verse 19, let's read, back to the story. Sorry, verse 16, one slide back, there we go. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. He was wanted, um, <laughs> for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Okay, back to the map again. Here he is. So Paul goes to Troas, then uh, down to that name below Troas. I'm not going to attempt that one. Uh, and then down there, and then he sails through these islands and finally to uh, uh, Miletus, Miletus. I don't even know how to pronounce it. But there he is. Skips over Ephesus, which is basically right in the middle of all that. Uh, Miletus is the next biggest city south of Ephesus. You can still go there today. It takes 48 minutes by car to drive from Ephesus to Miletus, okay? Paul sends word for the elders, please come. I'm hanging out in Santa Barbara for the day. I'm not gonna stay in San Luis or in Aurora Grande. I'll stay too long. Just come down to Santa Barbara, hang out, right? And we'll, we'll, we'll be together, we'll have dinner, we'll talk. It's Paul's last time with his friends. Verse 18, let's read what Paul says. Are you ready? When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Paul was constantly threatened, jailed, beaten, harassed by Jews that hated that their once great rabbi now seemed to be a Niners fan. He had switched to the dark side and and now claim that Jesus was the Messiah, okay? But Paul continues, verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated 
to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Paul was tireless. Tireless doing what? Loving people, going to them. He didn't expect people to come to them. He went from house to house to house to house to house. He went to them. And what did he tell them? Verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that, here's the message. Are you ready? This is what he said to all these people all this time. This has been the message of the church for all this time. Read with me. They must turn to God. So the first is repent, the second is have faith in Jesus. Let's talk about that just for a minute. Repent. Why? Because repentance is how we heal. When we say, Jesus, there's death in me, and I'm sorry, and I'm done eating from this death, that's called repentance. That's what it looks like, and that's the moment when we're healed. Look, you can only give away what you have, yes? Okay? So if you don't repent, what will you have? You'll have a bunch of death in your life. And how will you feel about yourself? You will not like yourself. In fact, you will hate yourself. You will not love yourself if you do not repent because you know that you can make a choice. You have free will. You are not a slave. You have the free choice to be able to say, either I do this or I don't do this. Okay? That's your freedom now. And if you keep on choosing, eating from death, you will hate yourself. You remember what Jesus says? Love thy neighbor as... But what if you hate yourself? What will you do? What? You'll hate your neighbor. Do you recognize what's happening in society now? Everybody's hating each other. Oh, and the church majors at this. We love to do this, right? You don't want to show up in heaven and face Jesus who's going to say this. You never believed I love you because you would never repent And thus, you never loved yourself or anyone else. Sure, you had affection, but you never sacrificed for another because you would never offer the sacrifice of repentance. Anybody want to have that conversation with Jesus? No. Repentance is way more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is being done with death. It's choosing to change. You are not going to be 100% perfect in that process. That's okay. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Someone say amen. Amen. That means you agree with me that I'm not Jesus. Yes? I am not the model of perfection. I am the model of what it looks like to be broken and for God to do the same healing in me that he's doing in you. It's taking full, repentance is taking full responsibility for my life. It's not blaming anything that I choose to do on anyone else, but saying I'm free to either eat death or life, and I choose life this day. And when you do, you'll discover that people still love you, even though you're saying I'm a hot mess. And when you repent, you'll discover that Jesus really does love you and there is no condemnation and he's not mad or frustrated with you. He's just so glad you've stopped eating from death. It's a bonus. And when you repent, you'll actually have this thing called integrity. And integrity gives you permission to love yourself. And then you'll start loving others. The greatest missions of all the church's history have come 
right after the church repents and is healed. That's why Paul says, repent. Second thing Paul says, I won't stay long on these points. I know, we need snacks if we're going to go much longer, okay? (laughs) What else does Paul say? Faith. Why? Because faith is trusting Jesus to change you, Jesus to provide for you. And, And just as important, Jesus is... Faith is you trusting Jesus that he's going to do the same with other people in your life. Does that make sense? This last week, I had a long conversation with Jesus from 1 to 3 a.m. in the morning. And I've been entitled for so long. And this last year, I've been on this journey of Jesus changing and healing me from this entitlement. And I was Jesus is like, I just want to be done. I want, all, I, want to, like, I want to stop struggling with this. I want to move on to the next thing. I don't care what it is. I just want to be healed and be done with this. And Jesus is like, um, do you trust me? Which was another way of him saying, you don't trust me. He told me straight up. I, he said, do you trust me? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And he goes, mm, actually, this is, quote, what he said. You don't trust my process. You think change happens instantly. I'm giving you chances to fight for others. And even in your failures, I'm teaching you, changing you, growing you. But you're mad you're not in charge. Can anybody relate with where I've been? It's like 11 honest people. Let's try that again. First, repent. Jesus, I'm sorry for lying. Second, can anybody relate with where I am? Yeah, you can. Why? Because we want change now. And more importantly, we want change with the people that are living in our same household now. Right? Our prayer isn't so much, oh, Lord, change my heart. It's, oh, Lord, for the love, change theirs. Huh. See, the thing is, is that, like, right in the middle of this moment, Jesus is telling me to repent, and also Jesus is telling me to trust him. Trust him with my own heart. Trust him with other people's own hearts. Because the thing is, is that if I'm in charge of my own salvation and my own transformation, the only tool that I'll have when I fail is anger and hatred, and then I'm right back in the same place that I've been our entire life, my entire life. And it's really the only option. And even if you say, oh, Andy, I'm not that hard on myself, hogwash, that's your delusion. You know how it comes out? You're hard on everybody else. And if you have the courage to ask them, they'll tell you. The only option with Jesus in charge, with us repenting and, him have, and having faith in him, that's the only option where love and hope and kindness and mercy and forgiveness and truth and boundaries can take place. Paul continues, we're not going to read the whole talk today, but I want to end with these last words from Paul. He says this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he's bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul says to the leaders of the church, watch out. Look, people are going to lead you away from repentance, and they're going to lead you away from faith. They're going to say, you don't need repentance. You're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You're fabulous in every way. You're the best thing since sliced bread. Everything's great. Just have self-esteem in yourself, right? It's like Oprah, right? That's a wolf, okay? Just like, it's true, right? You don't need God. You could just feel great about yourself all the time. That's Wolves leading us astray. But then Paul says, they're not going to come, oh, they're going to come from outside. Yeah, because we're going to have outside influences in our life, but they're also going to come from you. Your own heart will say, don't repent. No. Ah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with me. I didn't do anything wrong. They did something wrong. 
I didn't do anything wrong. It was my parents. They messed me up. We'll blame anyone and anything and everyone so that we don't have to take full responsibility for the choices that we're making to eat from death. 30 years later, Jesus is going to send a message to the church in Ephesus through a guy named John. John, the only kid in Jesus' youth group, is an old man. By this time, he's in jail in solitary confinement on a little island outside of Ephesus called Patmos, and he's been given a vision by God, and God himself, Jesus himself, is going to use John to write letters to the different churches that Paul literally has just visited, the map that we just looked at. And in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus has this message for the church in Ephesus 30 years after this sacred night with Paul. And it goes like this. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they're liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. Ephesus nailed it, right? Boom. Oh, man. And we as the church want to be this, right? We're like, oh, liar, wrong, no, uh-uh, not going to buy that ideology, that politics is wrong, bad theology, uh, wrong, sin, eep, right? We love doing that. Facebook, wrong, no, wrong, Instagram, no, wrong, no, Snapchat, what's that? I don't know, right? Like, like all of you were like, oh, yes, let's stand up for the truth, and all of those people are wrong, they're wrong, and then Jesus says this, but I have this complaint against you, read, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. Guys, guys. Guys, you can be right. Don't you dare lose love. Don't do it. Don't be right at the expense of love. Love and truth are part of the same. Part of the same. Jesus isn't right at the expense of loving you. Ha! You're wrong! doesn't do that. He brings truth with kindness because that's what leads to repentance. <laughs> there are so many people who are dying all around us. They've been pushed from that third floor window by society. They've been dragged there off the ledge by their friends. They've been pushed off by their parents. Everybody walks by them and says, no, you're an addict. No, you, you do sex wrong. No, you think wrong. No, you're right of the part. Wrong politics. Wrong party. No, you messed up too long. No, you wear the wrong clothes. And so you can just lie there dead. And they're your friends and they're your neighbors and they're the people that are on your teams with your kids' soccer teams or whatever. They're, the, they're people in your family. They're literally sitting next to you right now. They're all around you. You are the church. You're the, you could be the only experience of church that they ever have. And when you share your story of repentance and faith, they'll see Jesus and they'll be changed. And I don't know if it's going to be that right there in that moment they're going to be raised back to life, but I know that you'll be a step in their journey of how God reaches them. Because that's what we do. Amen? Amen? They need your embrace. And they need your prayers. Because someone did that for us. We were brought lost, broken, dying. And God saved us. Yes? Can we pray? God, some of us right now are like, we're just, we feel like that kid, Eutychus, 
and we're just busted and broken, and we fell asleep in the sermon, and we don't even know what's going on. But we do know that our lives is just, it just feels like a wreck right now. And we really need your embrace. And we really need to be healed. And so we're asking you, Jesus, to do that. Thank you for the people that you've sent to us to bring us back to life. And some of us, God, we're just, we're standing around and we don't know what to say to the people in our lives. And it just feels awkward. The whole thing just feels awkward. God, would you give us courage and wisdom and enough whimsy to know how to love, to say the thing that we need to say, to do the thing that we need to do? We trust you, Jesus, that you're going to use us to bring people back to life. And we're not in charge at the time. And so we surrender that to you for our hearts and for theirs. And we trust you, Jesus. And most of all, Jesus, we honor you. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you for bringing us back to life. Thank you for using us. We don't deserve it. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us faith. And I pray for my friends, Lord, for more repentance and more faith, more resources, more generosity. I pray now for the conversations that they're going to have this week with the people that they love. Holy Spirit, bathe those. Use them. Bless them. We love you, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. You guys, we have nachos for you. Would you stand and receive the benediction? Now may the Lord bless these nachos and you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance. That's his delight in you and give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all those who are about to eat nachos said, God bless you guys. Have a great day. Pastor Andy Rock is the senior pastor of Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. 